I figured we would stick with 1 Peter. Uh, so if you would, open up to the book of 1 Peter in chapter 1. Uh, our sermon text this morning is on verses 13 through 16. Uh, I will be reading, uh, beginning in verse 1, on through verse 16. Let's hear the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of our God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And in our text, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that you have not left us to uh, fashion our own ways of life, the own doctrine of holiness and what it would mean to live a righteous life before you, but you have revealed it to us in your word. And we ask this morning that we would conform our lives to your word and conform our lives to your Christ, to our Savior who has revealed to us in your word. Let us not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, but maintain fidelity to it all our days. And it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. We live in an age and a culture uh, where the principle of nonconformity is lauded as the highest of ethical goals. It is the definition of a high character or a strong person. Uh, we laud the person who goes against the flow, who stands out from the crowd, the 
person who refuses to follow the norm, who blazes their own trail, you could say. If you go do a simple Google search on nonconformity and go to the images tab, you will get a quite humorous number of memes and, and, and gifs and images trying to illustrate this reality. You will even find a number of books written on it. One particular book caught my eye. The title of that book was this, The Art of Nonconformity. And the subtitle, Set Your Own Rules, Live Your Own Life, and change the world. Do you see the irony of a book written on the arts of nonconformity? The irony of this nonconformist movement is that they are actually calling you to conform to their nonconformity, calling you to conform to a worldview, a mode of life, a view of reality where you set your own rules. You live your own life, and by setting your own rules and living your own life, you conform the world after your own image. Now, there may be some truth that we can glean from a principle of nonconformity. In fact, Peter himself will call us in our passage to not conform to something. But I think when we're pondering our own worldview, when we're asking the question of how should we live our lives, what is it that determines our manner of conduct? We should take our lives in a different direction. We, can cons- we should consider something other than this art of nonconformity. We must pose and answer the question, to what do you conform? See, everyone conforms to something. Do you conform yourself to that set-your-own-rules paradigm of the world? Do you call yourself to live however you please, doing as you please? Or do you call yourself to follow the commands of God? Do you pursue what He pleases? And do you call yourself to conform not to your own image of reality, but rather to His own holiness? Do you seek to conform to the former passions of your former life? Or do you seek to be conformed to the holiness of your God and your King? You see, I think that's the question that Peter puts before us today in our passage. Because what he calls us to do is have our hope set on nothing less than the revelation of Jesus Christ in glory. And as we set our hope on nothing less than that revelation of Jesus Christ in His heavenly kingdom, we are invigorated to live holy lives for today, conformed more and more to the character of the God who saves us and the character of the God who will bring us into that kingdom of holiness. You put it a little bit more simply, setting our minds fully on Christ and His coming we become more like Christ in our lives today. Setting our minds fully on Christ and fully on his coming, we become more like Christ, more holy like Christ in our everyday lives. I see this in three parts this morning. First, the call to hope, verse 13. Second, what you are not to be conformed to in verse 14. And then who you are to be conformed to. And verses 15 and 16. 
Now, looking at the call to hope in verse 13, it's important to realize its context in the book of 1 Peter. And it's actually a very important verse. It, it forms a sort of bridge between verses 1 through 12 and verses 14 through 21, and even on into the rest of the book. It joins together uh, these two different sections. And because of that, it's very important to pause and consider the impact of this particular verse. And we need to understand it in the way it relates both to what precedes as well as to what proceeds from it. And in the preceding portion of his letter, verses 1 through 12, Peter has been outlining the nature of the Christian life, the nature of our hope in Christ. In verses 1 and 2, he identifies Christians as elect exiles of the triune God, those who are called by his might and, and brought into communion with the God of heaven. And in verses 3 through 12, it's actually one long sentence in Greek. Your English teachers would be very dismayed at this, but it is. It's one long sentence, and the main point of it is simply this. Worship God. All right, notice verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is describing the Christian life as one that is characterized by praising and glorifying the God of heaven. God did not redeem you to glorify you. He redeemed you to glorify and exalt his own name. He showed his mercy upon you, brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. That way you might be a people of praise, that you would bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This blessing is offered because God, verse 4, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Christ, you have been born again. You have been brought to a hope and an inheritance that is eternal, unfading, and imperishable. And so although we will suffer for a little while, and a whole variety of trials, Peter says in verse 6, you are promised that God will bring you to your heavenly inheritance, to a kingdom that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, a people of praise, will yourself be raised in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7. In fact, the connection between verse 13 and these verses is so important that that line, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is repeated in verse 13, isn't it? See, what are these first 12 verses of 1 Peter about? They're about the living hope the living hope that you have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you have heard through the gospel proclaimed by the prophets of old and through the apostles of this New Testament age. Verse 13 calls us to reckon with that, to know who you are as Christians. But it marks an important point of transition. Whereas verses 1 through 12 outline who you are as the elect exiles of the triune God who are born again through the power of Christ's own resurrection, through the proclamation of his gospel, verse 13 begins with the implications of that for your life. In linguistic terms, he shifts from the indicative, from statements of reality, statements of who you are, to the imperative, commands or instructions that you are to live by. See, essentially, Peter is saying this, in light of the gracious working of God in your life to raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life, therefore, 
verses 13 and following, you are to live your life in a certain way. A life characterized by the hope of Christ's final revelation in the new heavens and new earth, verse 13. To pursue holiness, verses 14 through 16. To love one another earnestly, verse 22. To crave pure spiritual milk, chapter 2, verse 2. To abstain from the passions of the flesh and keeping your conduct pure, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And on through the end of the book. You see, verse 13 begins the exhortation begins the call to how you are to live your lives in light of who you are in Christ, in light of what he has done for you and in you, and in light of the heavenly hope that you have. In fact, this verse is so important for the rest of Peter's letter, he actually returns to it twice. He uses a lot of the same language of verse 13 in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and... Sober-minded, right? We have that in verse 13, for the sake of your prayer. Same thing in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, this transition verse, this bridge between who you are in Christ and how therefore you are to live your life, forms a sort of umbrella commandment for the rest of the book of Peter. It's it's one commandment that kind of heads them all and orients everything he is about to say in the rest of his letter. You see, the structure of this book and the, the transition here in verse 13 is very, very important because it calls you to consider the connection between who you are who you are in Christ, and how you live Christ-like lives. See, there is no conflict in the Bible or in your lives between the sole divine working of salvation for you and in you and the call to pursue holiness in living. These things are never opposed to one another in the Bible. The work to God to save us is not by our own works, but it does lead to the pursuit of holiness in our lives. You put it this way, God's redemptive work renders an effect in you. Whereas you are enlivened by the Spirit, you are renewed to where you will pursue righteousness and holiness. While once dead in your trespasses and sins, you by God's grace were made alive. And as you were made alive, you were set free to live lives of holiness and righteousness before the God of heaven. See, the order of this in the Christian life can never be reversed. Peter, in fact, will regularly, even in this section of the letter, talking about the instructions, the exhortations, how to live, take you back to who you are, like he does in chapter 1, verse 19, and how you are washed with the precious blood of Christ. Or verses 9 and 10, how you are a, uh, of chapter 2, how you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood brought out of that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's marvelous light. I think in light of this structure, we need to take care. We need to take care that we never use the marvels and magnificence of God's grace towards us as an excuse to be lax in our spiritual lives. Instead, it spurs us on more and more to pursue holiness and obedience to our heavenly 
Father. And in fact, that's the very thing that I think verse 13 calls us to do. It calls us to more and more be spurned and encouraged to pursuing holiness and righteousness in Christ. Notice how Peter begins this section of exhortation in his letter. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice what he's saying here. You cannot be lax in your spiritual lives. You must prepare yourselves to engage in it. You must be sober-minded in your engagement in your spiritual lives. There is an activity that is going on here. In fact, the literal translation is that you are to gird up the loins of your mind. Now they translate it, prepare your mind, because that doesn't make sense in our modern world, does it? But it's an Old Testament idiom calling you to get to work, to prepare yourself, to get ready for the task of hand. It's the, the Old Testament equivalent of the modern day idiom of rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty. The Christian life, Peter is saying, is not marked by idleness or spiritual laxity. There is an urgency to the task at hand. You need to get to work. Gird up the loins of your mind. Peter then specifies the way you are to gird up the loins of your mind and saying we need to be sober-minded. Now, people often read sober and think it automatically jump to abstinence from alcoholic drinks and drunkenness. And while we should, of course, avoid drunkenness in our lives, it's not Peter's point here. The idea here in sober-mindedness is to be free from any sort of mental or spiritual drunkenness, to be free from the intoxication of the world. In fact, one commentator puts it well when he says of sober-mindedness that there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized by the attractions of the world. And when people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. See, what is Peter saying here? He's saying to be ready to act. Prepare yourselves, he is saying. Prepare yourself to, to maintain a way at looking at your lives that does not become drunk on the loves and passions of this world. The cares, concerns, and love of the world often creep up and choke out, of our, or choke out our spiritual lives. And Peter is saying here, no. Gird up the loins of your mind against that. Be sober-minded in your spiritual lives. Do not take the pill that causes you to become drowsy in your spirituality. What pill then are we to take? One of hope. That's actually the main command of this verse. The previous two, although some translations do treat them as commands like the New International Version, they're actually not. They're actually ways and related to the actual command of the book, or of the verse, which is to hope. To set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And ponder that for just a moment. 
We are often tempted to think as hope as just something you have. But Peter calls us to labor in our hope, to pursue our hope, to gird up the loins of our minds in our hope, to be sober-minded in our hope. We don't just consider hope as something given to us from the outside. It's something we actively orient our spiritual lives to. Prepare yourself. Be sober-minded. Ponder the hope that you have in Christ. But what does it mean to hope? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean my hope from what should have been 5 a.m. this morning uh, when I rolled out of bed and checked the weather, and I thought, man, I sure hope it doesn't rain today. What was that? It was just an expression of desire. I knew I had to drive. I, uh, I knew I didn't want to drive in, in the rain, and I didn't want it to, even though all the evidence proved to the contrary. That's not the hope of the New Testament. The hope of the New Testament isn't this desire of simply something to the contrary. It's not a statement of something that is uncertain. It is actually quite the opposite. It is a statement of confidence in something that is sure and good and beneficial for you. This statement of hope is a term of assurance where the object that is hoped for here, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is a certainty for you. We are called here to orient our entire Christian lives along the reality of who Christ is and his coming in the new heavens and the new earth. This hope is a surety. It's something you can trust in. It's something you can rest in even as you are living your lives today, so often marked by suffering rather than glory as Peter had just talked about in verse 6. And we have this, as Peter had just said in verse 3, remember in our reading, as a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This hope is a certainty that you are to orient your life towards. And the certainty here is that Christ is coming. That's what the revelation of Jesus Christ here means. It's it's the coming of Christ at the end of days to usher in his final kingdom. Peter is here calling you to consider heaven as an all-orientating feature for your lives even now. To look towards the heavenly reality and know that that is the destiny for you, even if it might not look that way today. And therefore, Peter is saying, Live your lives in light of heaven. He is saying you are not a citizen of the earth. You are a citizen of heaven. Be heavenly in your lives. Set your hope fully on the revelation of Christ that is to come. It's actually an important word here, isn't it? Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This hope, this hope that orients everything in your life is an exclusive hope. Your hope is exclusively, is only on Christ and his kingdom. It cannot be caught up with anything else other than your Lord and his reign. There is nothing else that can satisfy the hope of the Christian life. Your hope is not in making America great again. 
Your hope is not in redeeming various features of our culture. Your hope is not in gaining status or relevance or power or influence in this world. Your hope is not in prosperity or in money. It's not in escaping difficult circumstances of suffering and persecution in an increasingly anti-Christian world. Your hope is and must be fully and exclusively on Christ and his coming. Peter calls you here to a sure, steadfast, undividing hope in the heavenly reality. Your great hope and this great overarching call that Peter has for your life is to set your gaze to heaven. To look toward the heavenly promises that are yes and amen and your Lord and not be satisfied with anything else that this world has to offer. In fact, I think it's a lot like what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, what? If you are raised with Christ, if you have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, what's the command? Seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved, your undivided hope, your sure foundation, the anchor of your soul, is the heavenly reality of the kingdom of God. This is your inheritance, imperishable and undefiled and unfading. This is your hope, a kingdom that cannot be shaken in the heavenly places. That's the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The kingdom that you have already now received by faith will be revealed by sight when Jesus comes again. And what greater hope could there be? And what else can satisfy your hope as a Christian? It is this hope of heaven, sure and steadfast, that I believe anchors the call to holiness in our lives. Peter's logic here, I think, actually matches that of Paul in Colossians 3, where immediately after calling you to seek Christ and to set your minds on things that are above, to be heavenly-minded. Remember how Paul continues there? In the very next verse, he says this, Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Do you see the contrast? Set your minds on heaven, put to death whatever is earthly in you. And then he tells us things that are earthly in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see how Peter continues in verse 14? He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In chapter 4, verse 3, Peter tells us more about what these passions of our former ignorance are, where he says that time has passed. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Peter is saying, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to your former way of life. Instead, be transformed. 
Be transformed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, by the renewal of your minds that you have in Christ. You have been called out of that life, Peter is saying. That's, that's the former way. The time that has passed, that's enough time for that worldly nonsense. Don't conform yourself to that life. You've been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. Don't return to the darkness again. You've been set free from the enslavement to sin. Don't enslave yourself once more. See, Peter is asking you, what determines your conduct? Is your conduct determined by the former ignorance that you had prior to salvation in Christ? Or is your conduct determined by the heavenly hope that you have and the Christ that you have? Do you live as a citizen of the world As a citizen of the earth, or do you live as a citizen of heaven? Is your life conformed to the conduct of the action of the Gentiles, chapter 4, verse 3, or is it conformed to the holiness of God, verses 15 and 16? And that's an important question to consider for us, isn't it? Where do you get the insight for how to live your life? Where do you go? When you wonder what you are supposed to do in a variety of circumstances, how you are supposed to live in the own realities and circumstances of your life, where do you gain your insight? What do you seek to be conformed to? Do you seek to conform yourself to the word of God, to the revelation of Jesus Christ and the hope of his heavenly kingdom? Or do you go out to the world to find how you might live your life as a Christian. Too many Christians, I fear, fall prey to this conflict of interests in our lives. And as they fall prey to this conflict of interests in our lives, they seek to conform themselves more to their life outside of Christ than their life in union with Christ. But in God's mercy, he's called you out of the former things. He's called you out of that former ignorance. And instead, he has united you to his son and called you to live a new life of holiness, bearing the impress of Christ's character on your own life. In fact, much of what Peter says in these verses and in some of the ones that follow in the letter are contrasts of the former life to the present life. Formerly, Peter says, we were ignorant of God and his ways, but in salvation, what are you brought to know but Christ and God and his word? It's significant here that as Peter is going to continue in his letter, he talks about how we know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from the forefathers in verse 18. You were formerly ignorant, but not any longer. The work of Christ is to reveal himself to you. Therefore, live your life in light of Christ. Formerly in our ignorant ways, we were not children of God, but how did Peter begin this verse? He describes you as obedient children. Oh, that we would be obedient children to the Lord. Verse 17, he continues telling us about how we would call upon God as our own Father. Formerly, we were controlled by or conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but now you are controlled by a life of obedience to God and his precepts. Formerly, 
Your ways of life were futile, but now it is a way of life and faith and hope in God that leads to a purification of your souls. Formerly, your life was affirmed and loved by the world, chapter 4, verse 3, but now your life has been set free from the world to holiness of God through the living and abiding word. And therefore, you will be rejected and slandered by the world. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. This is a time of conflict, you see. A time of conflict of interest between the former things, our former passions, and the reality of our salvation in Christ and our future inheritance. So let me ask you again. In this age of conflict, where do you gain insight for your lives? To what do you seek to be conformed? Do you seek to conform yourself to those former passions? Or do you seek to conform yourself to Christ. We all wage war against our indwelling sin, don't we? The call of Peter here is to put to death that sin. To be not conformed to our former way of life and instead to be conformed to who we are in Christ. That's where Peter takes us last of all in verses 15. And 16. Whereas verse 14 presents the negative of what we're not supposed to be conformed to, how we are not to conform to our former selves, not to conform to our former ignorance, not to conform to the former way of life like the Gentiles. Instead, verses 15 and 16, we get the positive, who we are to be conformed to. And the, the contrast here is quite clear, isn't it? Our lives, our holiness is to be according to the one who has called you. To be holy means to be conformed to the character of the God who has brought you out of darkness and into light. To be God-like, to be Christ-like in your lives. And I think the way Peter puts this is very important. The call to holiness in verses 15 and 16 is a statement according to the holiness of the one who has called you. To be a holy people to a holy God You must first be called by that holy God. What Peter means by called here is what theologians call effectual calling, where God, by his grace, in his own might, calls you out of your former life and renews you and makes you new in Christ. You must first be, Peter is saying, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Same verb. Out of darkness into marvelous light, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. God is the one who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. But not only does God call you, but the God who calls you empowers you to live a life of holiness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. All things that pertain to life and godliness are through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. See, there is never a command to works and holiness without the grace of God calling us and the power of God giving us what we need to live that holy life. You are children of God in Christ, born again through the imperishable seed of God's word, brought with the precious blood of our Savior, and therefore you are made holy and may live a life of holiness even today. The ground for this is God and his mercy in Christ. And the potency, the power for this is God and his mercy in Christ. 
And what does God in his mercy through the shed blood of Christ work to bring you to? He brings you to his son. He brings you to Christ-likeness. I think that's the emphatic call of these verses, isn't it? It's all about being like the one who calls you. Being holy as he is holy. Instead of conforming yourselves to your former passions, not setting your own rules, not living your own life, you are to be conformed according to the one who has called you. And and Peter even quotes a, a passage from the book of Leviticus to anchor this reality where he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Where do you look to gain insight to how to live your life? Peter is saying, look to Christ. Look to your Savior. Listen to his word and let him be the impress upon your character. Beloved, don't miss the gravity of these verses. In the fall, when mankind and Adam refused to conform to God's holiness and pursued sin and death instead, what did we lose? We lost fellowship with God. We lost that holy likeness to the God of heaven. We were confirmed in darkness, sin, and death rather than holiness, life, and light. But the power of God and the gospel of his Son is to break the power of reigning sin, to call you back to himself, to renew you in holiness, renew you in his own glorious likeness, to confer upon you his own image. In salvation, God renews you and makes you more like him. Crafts you like the master craftsman into the image of your Savior, Jesus. Whose holiness is it that you receive besides the holiness of Christ imputed to you by faith? And whose image, therefore, should you bear but the image of Christ in your life? See what Peter is saying here. He's saying, don't be conformed to the world. Be conformed to Christ. And be conformed to the world to come. See, God breaks the power of reigning sin. He renews you in the image of Christ today. And he also gives you the hope of glory. When we read verses 15 and 16, we need to remember verse 13, don't we? The call to holiness today is anchored in the hope that we have at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when Christ returns in glory, he will fully renew us in his image. The war that we rage against sin today will be brought to an end in victory when Christ comes again. And you who are now fully known by God will know God fully yourselves. And you will be renewed in perfect righteousness and holiness you will fully bear in glory the image of your blessed Savior. No weight of sin bearing you down. We have a hope of holiness, don't we? That God, in his grace, by his mercy, makes us holy in Christ. Brings us out of our own sin-sick lives. And causes us to live for our Savior. To bear the image of our Lord even now today. God cannot withstand sin, can he? But the power of God in his mercy 
is to make you to be one who can be in his presence forevermore. You are already now renewed in holiness. In the new heavens and new earth, you will be perfected in holiness. And you will dwell forevermore in the presence of your holy God. That's the hope of holiness that we have in our Savior. The image of Christ and the 